0: Let's go ahead and continue our series on using the law lawfully, looking at how or if the Old Testament law applies to us as Gentiles, and today we're going to be looking at, or starting to look at the governmental laws in the Old Testament. not sure how many of them we're going to look at all in a row. There's a whole bunch of them listed in the the Sefer HaMitzvah that we're going through. All right, there in a row that we've gotten to. But I don't think it lists all of them all right there. Uh, It kind of skips around. So we're just going to follow the order of the Sephardim Mitzvah and we'll talk about the ones that come up uh, in that order. So we'll be coming back to other laws about the government uh, later. But today we're going to look at choosing a king and we're going to look at the authority of the Supreme Court. Both of those are going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So You can go ahead and turn there, Deuteronomy 17, and we'll start in verse 14. Deuteronomy 17 and verse number 14. Let's just go ahead and read this whole section through verse 20. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses, forasmuch as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. We're in Deuteronomy 17. And uh, going to verse 18 now. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law, and a book out of that which is before the priest, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So this is the law concerning choosing a king and setting up a king over the nation of Israel. So we want to look at that and see how that applies to us as Gentiles, or even if it applies to us as Gentiles. So in the Old Testament command here, first thing we notice in verse 14, this is not a command so much as it is a permission. Uh, They were not commanded to set a king over them. They were given permission to set a king over them. And uh, we remember in uh, the book of Samuel when, the people approached Samuel and said, we want a king, make us a king. And Samuel you know, cried unto God and said, you know, what are we going to do? The People are wanting a king. And God said, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me, that I should rule over them. But he told Samuel, go ahead and give into to their request and give them the king. So up until that point, uh, God was in essence in the position of a king, uh, but not, wasn't actually a theocracy, and we can look at that at another time, but. In essence, God was in the position of the king up until that point, And then they wanted an, an earthly king uh, to be underneath God as their ruler. And God told Samuel to go ahead. Now, the, the reason he told Samuel to go ahead is because he had given them permission to do that. He had already said beforehand, when you come to the land you want a king like the other nations, this is how you need to do it. So it, it was a permission given to them to do that. Uh, but again, this is not a command. It was just permission. Now, the Jews today interpret this as a command. And if you were to read the Sefer HaMitzvah, that's what it says, that this is a command that they are to set a king up over them. And I disagree with them. I don't think this is a command. It's, it's just permission. Uh, the next thing we see is that the king must be someone who is approved by God. Okay, So not just anyone. But it has to be someone that God has chosen, that God approves of, that God has said, this is the person that I think would be a good ruler for you. And so we've seen that uh, throughout Israel's history. Of course, you had David that was chosen. Well, first Saul was chosen, uh, and anointed by Samuel, uh, chosen out by God. And if you remember the account, Saul was first chosen by God. And at that time, there was not a unanimous vote to make Saul the king. And so they didn't make him king right then. And it took another battle where Saul actually led them into battle and uh, did a good job in, in leading them into battle. And then they said, okay, whoever did not want Saul to be king, you better change your mind or we're going to put you to death. And that was, that was when it was unanimous, okay, we're all going to vote for, for Saul to be king. But God chose him first and had Samuel anoint him. And then when it came time for uh, David to be king, God didn't anoint Jonathan. He anointed David. Jonathan recognized that and was willing to give David the kingdom. Saul was not, Uh, but David was anointed by God and then uh, was afterwards voted in by the people to be the king. And, of course, remember that was a a two-part thing. First he was voted as king over Judah, and then later he was voted king over the the United Kingdom. And it progresses on through there. Each time uh, God first was the one that made the decision and the anointing, and then the people... Would take whoever God chose and they would vote on whether or not to follow God's choosing and have a king that was approved by God. So that was the second requirement, or the first requirement, uh, was that the king had to be someone that was approved by God. Next thing was that he had to be a natural born citizen. If you look in verse 15, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren. Shalt thou set king over thee? Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So he had to have someone that was a natural-born citizen. That was the, the requirement. He had to be born among them, one of their brethren, and that's who they could set as their king, not someone who is born in a foreign country. That's what the stranger, that's someone who's born in a foreign country. So they're not allowed to, to set the stranger king over them. It has to be someone born among them, that is their king. next requirement is that he should not use the kingship to increase his personal wealth. We can see that in verse 16. He shall not multiply horses to himself. So it's not someone that's going to come in and just use his position in order to to increase his wealth uh, and make himself uh, more powerful. And then also in verse 16, he's not to be a person that leads the people into subjection. Uh, nor calls the people to return to Egypt to the end that you shall multiply horses for as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall not henceforth return, or ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Okay, so he's not to take them into the path of subjection, back into the path of slavery, selling the people out in order that he can get game for himself personally. So that's not the type of person that they are to have as king over them. Verse 17 tells us he's to have a good family life. Neither shall he multiply, multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Okay, so multiplying the, the wives to himself, that's just going to bring all kinds of conflicts of interest and trouble. He's uh, not to be a man that does that, because that the wives will pull him in different directions, and his heart's going to be focused on which wife he's going to please, rather than on uh, serving God and fulfilling the needs of the nation. And we see that in Israel's history as well. Both David and Solomon are great examples of that, having multiple wives and turning away to follow the gods of their wives rather than following the one true God and focusing on what was best for the nation. That's something that was repeated multiple times throughout Israel's history in spite of God's warning. Uh, The next thing is he's to be a student of the law. Uh, Verse number 18 and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law and a book out of that which is before the priest, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes, to do them. Okay, so he's to be a student of the law, to write out, handwrite a copy of the law and to read it every single day. It would be great if we had that requirement for our presidents that they had to write out, and even for all of our congressmen, write out by hand a copy of the Constitution and read it every single day so that they abide by that Constitution. But unfortunately, we don't have that law. I think it would be beneficial. But that was one of the laws for the kings of Israel. Now, whether or not they all did it, well, actually, I know many of them did not do it because uh, there came a point where the law was actually even lost to Israel. Of course, that was during the captivity, but very few of the kings followed the law. Uh, So if if they had read it and studied it, they would have been much more likely to follow it and save Israel from a lot of heartache. And then finally, uh, the seventh requirement in verse 19 and 20, he was not to be above the law, and it shall be with him. We read verse 19, he's supposed to keep all the words of this law and do them. And then verse 20, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days and his kingdom. So he's, he's not above the law. He can't lift his heart up above his brethren and say, I'm better than you, I don't have to obey these laws. No, he has to obey the law just as much as anyone else. Okay, so those are the Old Testament commands regarding choosing a king. Now, as far as the New Testament application, There's no direct application of this to New Testament believers. There's nothing in the New Testament that says when you, as Christians, choose a ruler over you, you have to do this, this, and this. Uh, However, it is a very good pattern for us to follow. And I'm not just talking about voting, that would be a a different lesson, a different set of commands and stuff. In particular, for setting up laws. for how to choose a king. The philosophy that was prevalent during the time of America's founding, well, there were two philosophies. There was one philosophy that uh, we need to reject all religion and be completely secular and and atheistic in our government, humanistic. That was the philosophy behind the French Revolution. And then you had a competing philosophy that we needed to study the government in the Old Testament with the idea that this was a government that was directly established by God. And if God directly himself established a government, that government must have been the absolute best government possible for that particular time and that particular group of people. And so taking that assumption that God's government is going to be a perfect government, perfectly designed for those people in that situation, and therefore if we were to establish a government, we would want to study God's government and Follow it as closely as possible to whatever human government we establish, but, of course, making necessary adaptations to fit the needs of the various times and various locations and various cultures. Uh, So some of the things in the government in the Old Testament wouldn't apply to us at all just because we're not in the same location. Uh, Some of them wouldn't apply to us because it's it's a different time period. Uh, We couldn't do the same things that were required of them uh, in their government. But as much as possible... We want to find whatever is uh, has timeless importance in that government and apply it to our government. And that was what our founding fathers attempted to do in America. They followed that a lot in the setting up the requirements for a president. For example, the idea that the president is to be a natural-born citizen. That was not a common idea during that time. In fact, it was, it was very foreign to the European mindset that most of our founders uh, came to America with they had, they had that European mindset of having hereditary kings and uh, the king kingship was based entirely on heredity and so there are many cases where you would have kings that uh, were not born in that land they were not citizens of that country but they were related to the previous king who passed on without a direct heir and so they got to be the, the new king uh, yet there is one case I can't remember the details, but I can remember a case where England at one time had a king that did not speak English. The king spoke French and had to have an interpreter to talk to his own subjects. And so the idea of a natural-born citizen, someone born among the people being the ruler, that that was a foreign concept at the time. It's it's not something that was prevalent among the the European nations and, and in Western civilization but it is something that was taught in the Bible and it's something that was promoted by those who are saying we need to go back to the Bible and study God's government and apply that to our government. And so that was adopted by our founding fathers. Uh, and so the fact that the king is not above the law was also another thing that that, that was not common. I mean there was in, in England there was a history of the king being under the law going back to the Magna Carta saying that the king is not above the law. But that was not the, the normal way that kings ruled. Typically, the king assumed that he was above the law. He had had uh, The king is the law, was the ruling philosophy at that time. Uh, and so they went back to the Bible, said, hey, this the British idea that the king is not above the law is the correct one, and we need to follow that rather than following some other idea about the king. Okay, and so... So many of the, the things were applied in our founding, and uh, they've been applied in philosophically in other nations as well. Uh, many of those trace their origin back to the Bible and God's government that he established for the Jews. So for choosing the king, there's no direct application to us in the New Testament, but it does give us a very good pattern that we should follow, and we should try to adapt our system to the system that God established as much as we can. Any questions on that one before we move on to the Supreme Court? All right, Well, for this one, we're going to stay in Deuteronomy 17. Let's just move up a little bit in the chapter to verse number 8. Alright, we're going to look at the authority of the Supreme Court. Now, we're not looking at the composition or the way that the court system as a whole was founded. For some reason in the Sefer HaMitzvah, they did not have that in uh, in order before we look at the authority of the Supreme Court. <clears throat> and Like I said, we're just following the order of the Sefer and so we will eventually get to <clears throat> how the whole court system and judicial system was established. And Israel. But for right now let's just look at the authority of the Supreme Court, what authority that court had in the nation of Israel. So let's start in Deuteronomy seventeen verses eight and nine. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priest, the Levites, and unto the judge, that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. So Israel was to establish a national court. So the Old Testament command, first of all, is that they were to establish a national court, created to handle matters that were too difficult for local judges. So as the local judge is trying to decide the case, and he can't decide the case, then all the parties were to go to Jerusalem. And before the Levites and a judge and had their case heard there, and then the, the Levites and the judge would uh, pass the judgment that everyone was to follow. Okay, so first we see the creation of it, and then the composition of it is composed of Levites and a judge as a panel of multiple Levites, and then a single judge that was over the Levites, and why the Levites? Because the Levites were the people that studied the law. That was their job in the Society of Israel, was to study and teach the law. So you had the people that were studying the law were the ones that were set up to judge matters of the law. And then you had a single judge who was the leader of that particular courtroom in order to determine what was to be decided. So we see in verse number 9, the composition, and in verse number 10, we see that the decision of the court was final. Verse number 10, And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee, and thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand, nor to the left, Uh, And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away evil from Israel. So this court, their opinion was final. They were the supreme court of the land. That's what that term means, that, that they were the final arbiter of what was allowed and what wasn't. And then in verse 16, we see the goal of this court was to prevent presumptuous actions. Verse 13, And all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. Now, presumption is not a word that we use a whole lot nowadays. What it is, is it's the act of claiming for yourself something that you do not have a right to. Okay, so it's presumptuous uh, of me to go out there and jump into your car and take your car and, and t- go off down the road without your permission. That's, that's just, I'm presuming upon your goodwill to allow me to do that, uh, rather than actually establishing that I have a right to get into your car and, and drive it down the road. So it's, it's the act of claiming for yourself something that you do not have a right to. Now, an example for this uh, from a legal standpoint would be like abortion. Abortion is a presumptuous act in which the woman and her doctor claim the right to kill a child when that right does not belong to them. That right belongs to God. God has the right over uh, life and death, and God has not delegated the right to kill an unborn child to anyone. And So that is a presumptuous act. So the job of the court system in Israel, in the ancient Israel, was to Prevent presumptuous actions like that Where people said I have a right to do this Someone else says no you don't have a right to do it And it all goes before the court And the court decides who has the right to do what Okay so that's the the court That was uh, the authority of the court in the Old Testament They were to decide between uh, claims of right Who had the right to do this versus who had the right to do that Uh, And then their decision was final And if you didn't abide by it The penalty was death. It was punishable by death if you had contempt or contempt of court toward the Supreme Court of Israel. Okay, now let's apply that to the New Testament and to us as New Testament believers and Gentiles. And again, we can see there's no direct command in the New Testament for the Gentiles to create this style of national court. But just as with the king, if we look at the court as this is God setting up the perfect and absolute best court that could be established for this people at this time, then that means we can probably learn something from it and that it provides us with a good pattern that we should follow uh, as well. And it also, uh, for us as Gentiles, if God commanded strict obedience to the rulings of the national court in Israel, then that means we should, at, at the very least, we should be willing to give strict obedience to the rulings of our supreme court as well. So we have a national supreme court here. God commanded the Israelites, you give strict obedience to that supreme court that I've set up over you. He didn't say only obey them if they're right. He said obey them, period. Whether they come up with a right decision or wrong decision, that's between them and God. You're to obey them because they're the supreme authority, the supreme arbiters of the land. And that's the way the supreme court is in our nation as well. So it doesn't mean... Uh, obeying the summary of the rulings, however, that the newspapers publish, uh, the newspapers put out and the, the TV news reporters, they, they make all kinds of claims about what the Supreme Court has actually ruled. Uh, but we're only required to follow the actual rulings of the Supreme Court. That, that should be all that we're required to do. That should be all that we're uh, willing to do as far as the Supreme Court's authority is concerned. We can follow the actual ruling of the Supreme Court, and only within the jurisdiction of that court and of that ruling. Uh, For example, the opinions of our Supreme Court in America are only binding on the parties who are named in the suit. Thus, Roe v. Wade, for example, is only binding on the state of Texas and on, uh, I forgot her name, the the lady that was named Roe in the the court case. I used to know her name. it's only binding on those two people. That's it. It's not and in fact the state of Texas is only binding on Wade, who was the uh, I believe he's the attorney general for the state of Texas. That's it. That's all that case is binding on. Now it establishes precedent that the Supreme Court and other courts can decide to follow or not to follow if they agree with the, the reasoning. But believe would lead- be case law. Hmm. would that be case law? Well, yeah, we don't have case law Per se, in America, we, well, um, I agree we should. But we, we kind of they do it at kinda, well, they do when they want to. Yeah. They they follow precedent when they want to, and they don't follow precedent when they don't want to. Uh, and so, which is the way it's set up, but it's not it's not binding on anyone other than those people that are named in the in the case, in the suit, and are given a chance to defend themselves in court. And it's a principle in American law. If you don't have a chance to defend yourself, then you can't be declared guilty. You can't be declared in the wrong and have your rights denied in any way if you don't have the right to defend yourself in court. So it's not binding on anyone except those who had the right to, had the opportunity to defend themselves before the court. Those are the ones that are named in the suit. So Roe v. Wade's only, it's not binding on Alabama. Alabama doesn't have to abide by it. Now, if we were to not abide by it, we would be sued by uh, NARA, the National Abortion Rights, uh, whatever, organization. Uh, we would be sued by NARA. It would go to uh, a federal court, and the federal court would say, well, the Supreme, Supreme Court already said this, and Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton, and all these others. And, uh, we still want to follow that, so we're going to rule in favor of NARAL and say that Alabama's law is null and void. And then we could then appeal that, go to appeals court. They would say the same thing. We could appeal that and go to the Supreme Court, and uh, most likely they would say the same thing. And so most states don't even try, because they say, well, I mean, all that's going to happen is we're going to go all the way up the ladder and spend a lot of money, make the lawyers rich, and we're going to get the exact same ruling that we got way back then. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. That's an excuse that they use to not do it. But that's not necessarily the case. However, from our standpoint. When we look at, if we were to say God commanded the Israelites to follow the authority of their Supreme Court, we should follow their example and be willing to follow the authority of our Supreme Court unless, of course, it commands us to do something directly against God. Oh. But even that is limited in that the authority of our Supreme Court is not supreme in making law. They don't make law for everyone. They only give an opinion That applies to the parties that were named in the suit. Okay? But if we were to look in the New Testament at some things that might apply to uh, the Supreme Court rulings, there are are some people that, and many of them are Christians, that actually say it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. Uh, If we disagree with it and we think it's wrong, we should still just disregard it and disobey it, even if we're the party in the suit and they're... Told us we're in the wrong, doesn't matter, we should still stand up and and defy the Supreme Court if we think that we're in the right. That goes against a couple of passages in Scripture, for example, Hebrews 13 17. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So again, in the New Testament, this is not a command in the Old Testament to the Jews. This is a command specifically to uh, New Testament believers <clears throat> that we are to obey them that have the rule over us. That would include the judges. And then the New Testament hints at the vast authority of judges in a couple of different places. You can see that in James chapter 5 and verse number 9. <coughs> Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. And it's this big, ominous statement. The judge is right there. And if you don't take care of your grudges before you get to the judge, you're going to be condemned. And there's no hope after that. And so it kind of implies this idea that the judge's saying is final. And we can see that also in Matthew 5, as Christ was talking in part of the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, Matthew 5 and verse 25, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. And so again, it was this idea that once a judge says, this is my ruling, then that's it. Now, of course, you have the appeals process, but once the the courts have ruled and said that's it, this is what you have to do, then as far as we can tell, God's view, that's binding. You're supposed to comply with that. Now, of course, we understand as Christians, if the the court says you have to denounce Christ or something like that, then we just say, no, we can't do that. You go ahead and kill us like the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and and when they were commanded to bow down to the, the golden image, they said no. They were defying the king. The king brought them to judgment, pronounced judgment against them. Yes, you're wrong. You need to bow down. If you don't, this is the punishment. They said, okay, go ahead and give us the punishment. And they were willing to do that. That may be the case sometimes, but you don't stand up, and, and they didn't stand up and say, well, king, you have no right to tell us that. They, they were very respectful of the authority of the king recognizing that he has the right to, to judge them and had the right to set up laws and that his judgment was final and they complied with his judgment. They complied in the form of accepting punishment. But they still complied with his judgment. And so we are to have that same attitude as Gentile believers and that we're willing to comply with the, the judgments of those of the world that are put over us. All right, any... Comments or questions on that one? We'll get out of here just a few minutes early. Brother Parsons, why don't you dismiss us in prayer?